0: Hi, I'm Josh Konstein, your host of Press Club. Today on Press Club, we're discussing the future of newsletters, how the rise of the medium is impacting journalism, if information overload is real and how we can solve it, how writers can build better independent businesses, and tips for how to improve your writing and newsletters' performance. Recorded on February 25th, 2021 on Clubhouse, we brought together some of the titans of the newsletter industry, including Jessica Lesson, CEO of The Information, Sam Parr, the CEO of The Hustle, Solo newsletter Lenny Rachitsky, Dan Primack, founder of Axios, Chris Best, CEO of Substack, Polina Marinova of The Profile, Judd Lagoom of Popular Information, Nathan Bastiez of Every, and Ben Thompson of Stratechery. We recorded this directly from Clubhouse, so please bear with us regarding the audio quality. And if you want to join future shows, follow me, Josh Constine, or my show Press Club on Clubhouse, my Substack, constine.substack.com, or our Twitter, PressClubhouse. Now, let's jump in and meet our speakers.
1: Hi, everyone. Jessica Lassen, the founder of The Information. I started the publication about seven years ago um, to cover the technology business. And um, we have uh, about more than two dozen journalists doing that, many of whom are starting newsletters at The Information. So I think this is a fascinating moment. Um, You know, I've always, it's funny, people. Think of us from day one. We published our articles into the inbox because um, we wanted to have that direct connection with our subscribers. And so, I think we, email has just been such an important channel for us for a long time. And now, I think you know um, what many of my compatriots on this panel and others have proved is just that that direct relationship with readers that you can get through a newsletter is just insanely, insanely valuable. So. Um, it, the information where we're about to launch a new AR VR newsletter. We're recruiting for a crypto newsletter, a creator economy newsletter. I'm contemplating an org chart newsletter, which does not sound sexy, but I promise that it is. And so to me, I, I think this explosion is really, um, you know, it's not about newsletters. It's about those direct reader to reporter connections and channels and how you make them stronger, whether you're an independent writer on Substack or a broader publication like The Information, trying to have a newsroom of hundreds of reporters.
0: Amazing. Thank you for, for that comment. But I want to kick it to Lenny. Lenny's one of the most incredible solopreneur uh, newsletter writers, built an incredible business over the last year, talking about product management. Lenny, maybe you just tell us a little bit more about how your newsletter works and what you think about why newsletters are like popping off right now.
2: Yeah, thanks, Josh. You're such a flatterer. Um, so I have a newsletter. It's called Lenny's Newsletter, which uh, conveys maybe how much thought I put into it when I started it. Uh, this <laughs> is not, not the career path I saw for myself. Um, the newsletter is uh, the way I frame it is it's an advice column for product managers, growth people, uh, anyone working with humans, and anything else that stresses you out at the office. I started about two years ago. It's just me. Uh, I have a few people happen out on the community side of it. But yeah, I read it all, and I don't know. So, so I started on Medium, and a lot of smart friends told me to move to Substack because uh, I get email addresses and can go straight to people. And I think a lot of this resurgence is just the fact that Substack exists; that it makes it so easy just to like try stuff out. Try you, like I started as a blog; I had no intention of doing a newsletter, and and then just kind of continued growing, and then it became obvious hey I should do a newsletter, and then oh, maybe I should charge for this thing. So I think Substack is a big part of why this is happening now.
0: So it's really about like the easier platform like built specifically for your kind of entrepreneur uh, to be able to join in this and not have to sort of manage a lot of the backend or deal with any like complicated interfaces. I feel like even MailChimp seems like relatively heavyweight compared to something like Substack.
2: Yeah, I honestly feel like the founders of Substack have this like ideal user journey of somebody going from just poking around to making a living doing it. And I followed that journey, I think, to the letter. I had no intention of doing a newsletter. And, sorry, my dog. And no intention of charging and just kind of like pulled me along because it just continued to grow. And uh, there's something about the magical combination of features these guys figured out that uh, that just works. Amazing. Uh,
0: so I wanted to ask uh, Sam, maybe you could jump in. Uh, We'd love to hear your experience, you know, building the hustle, recently selling the hustle to HubSpot. What the, uh, uh, just a quick intro about that. We'll get into deeper about like selling businesses in the newsletter business, but then your comments on, on why you think newsletters are you know, popping off right this moment.
3: Hey, what's going on? Um, and by the way, what was the name of, what was the URL of your online chat? I want to pull it up.
0: Yeah, totally. It's called Constine.club. It's just my last name, C-O-N-S-T-I-N-E.club. Cool. Uh, and there's a second screen chat, so you can chat with other listeners uh, and a- ask questions of our uh, speakers.
3: Cool. Um, so, hey, uh, I'm Sam. I started this thing called The Hustle. Um, uh, the question was why I think it, it's popping off right now with newsletters, right? Um, I mean... It, really nothing has changed. Like what's the most impactful thing that Gmail has done to email in the past like 20 years, which is basically just come up with like the promo tab. So it's like, <laughs> it's been incredibly consistent for literally 20 years. So I mean, the only thing that's not been consistent is that it's just gotten more popular, but it's still mostly the same. And so I think that, uh, when you, a lot of people, what happened is they built this huge audience on Facebook and Zuck, it's like, it's like, I always say, it's like building, um, it's like building a store, like where the landlord jacks up the real estate, the price of real estate, the price of rent every single quarter. And that's what a lot of people got burned on. And I think they realized that the inbox is kind of like every, uh, we have a joke here where we say like the, our email list is like our pirate ship and every new subscriber is like a little bit of wooden our sale because it's probably the last channel or the only channel where you can, that you can kind of own. And so I think that um, it's just, it's always, I mean like, I modeled my company after this other thing called daily candy, which sold at this point, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And so it seems like email is quite cyclical, but it definitely, uh, I think people are just seeing that it's, it's cool because Facebook kind of burned them, Instagram, uh, burned them when they, when they changed their algorithm. And and I just think people are just seeing that building an audience on rented real estate is kind of silly.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. It's like these algorithms change frequently. Their priorities of these platforms change. change but yeah, it's, a, it's, it's really something that you want to be able to own that audience and email lists. And now I think the feature kind of a text message list really feel that way. Um, cool. Dan, why don't you give us a quick intro about what you've
4: been doing at Axios and your opinion on why, why now for newsletters? Sure. I, I think I'm the old person here, at least in terms of newsletters. I, I started doing a daily one back in 2002, a uh, long, long time ago, uh, in part because I was looking for something to do and I thought I could make a little money. Uh, and after that went kind of something similar at Fortune and now at Axios, which is much more of a uh, newsletter driven uh, organization, uh, you know, teaming up with Mike Allen, who had obviously found a playbook over Politico. Uh, you know, I, to me, uh, you know, as Sam said, I don't think all that much has changed. Uh, I, I think one of the differences is, is that media organizations and individuals somehow just realize you can make a lot of money on it. I mean, you know, I, I've been doing this long enough that I was there for when email supposedly died. And then when I guess it came back. Um, but, but it's a good money making thing for media, in part because the analytics are really good. Right. You know, you can obviously on the website, you can figure out how many clicks there are. But with the newsletter, you you know, you have an open rate, you know how many how big your overall universe is. You've got some at this point, you, you kind of know who they are geographically, etc. And most importantly, you can communicate directly to them. You know, if, if you get, you, you know, a thousand or a million hits on a story, As a as a publisher, you have no way to communicate directly with those people if you want to or or to figure out what they're thinking. And they have no real good way to communicate with you, uh, at least in a way that they feel they're getting your attention. And with newsletters, you can. With emails, you can. I I do worry about email um, glut. I do subscribe to a lot of them that I just have no time to read. And it's my job to read them. So I am a little concerned for those who have real jobs. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was going to say like if, if even the people who are paid to full-time read and digest newsletters
0: aren't able to get through them all like what hope do us mere mortals have?
4: I've like never you, quite you, understood it. Just, I've always you, been impressed.
3: You don't need that many people to read it. Like Dan, what's your what's your open percentage? I mean, yours, yours is pretty badass. What's it like 40 or
4: 50%? Mine personally, I, I don't know what we say. Yeah, mine personally is about, yeah, I think we're about
3: 40. Yeah. Yeah, so that's great. You only need, you know, four out of the 10 people to actually read it. So like there is, there, there is hope for folks. And there's also hundreds of millions of people in America who
1: want it. Just, I mean, on the point of the glut too, I mean, I, I think more about, you know, how are these things going to turn into actual businesses? Right. And I think, you know, Lenny's really right to point out the value of Substack, but from my perspective, Substack is like one tenth of what you need. Um, if you're trying to build a kind of business or, or around a newsletter. Right. And for us, you know, the CRM, for example, is like a thousand times more important than the CMS. So I, I think what what's really interesting about this moment now is thinking, okay, not just we've made the barrier to entry so low, which is awesome. Um, and obviously we're talking about a wide variety of newsletters, but in a world I, I care a lot about, which is the future of like quality journalism. I think we have to shift our fo- attention to how to scale and grow these newsletters, which is an entirely different question.
0: Well, then I want to ask uh, Judd to to chime in. Judd, I know you were an unannounced guest, but I really appreciate you jumping up. That's kind of like half the fun of Clubhouse. It's like, who are the best people that show up? And like, let's get them on stage. You know, your your newsletter has just done incredible things, incredible work, uh, you know, fighting against some of the, the power uh, that, that gets abused in the social network world. Some of your reporting on Facebook has been incredible, getting real change made to like add policies for politics and things like that. But we'd love to maybe just tell us a little bit about what your newsletter is about and what your perspective is on why now for newsletters.
5: Well, uh, my newsletter covers a variety of Political topics, I focus a lot on sort of accountability issues, a lot of corporate accountability, both in tech, uh, but then also, you know, campaign finance and politics. Um, so, uh, so basically a political newsletter, but with a focus on, on accountability, sort of uh, broadly conceived. Um, it's, been, it's been a great format for me um, for the last, uh, I started in uh, about the middle of uh, 2018, uh, on Substack. Uh, I honestly, you know, I, I wish I could say that I saw this model and was like, this is going to be a great business and I can, will be able to support myself. I, I had no idea if I would, I was somewhat worried about it because I quit uh, a full-time job uh, to to try it out. But what I did like about it was the independence and freeing myself from the algorithms and the changing algorithms there's once you have someone's email you you have to try to write something that's decent so that they'll open it but it's a more consistent relationship and a direct relationship that builds over time as opposed to something that can have these wild swings such as if you were operating a website and just watching the facebook traffic sort of waste in and out i also think that the incentives on the business side, um, are, are really good because you, you need to, I mean, mine is subscription only, so I'm not looking for ads. And so you need to create a deep meaning for people to get them to pay you money. And that means doing deep work. And that's the work that I want to do. So the work that I want to do and the work that makes the business more successful are the same work. And that feels good. Awesome, so with that,
0: I wanna to jump towards what we think the impact of this is gonna be on traditional journalism. You can think of it as maybe an unbundling where you know certain parts of what a, a traditional website would be, could be just brought down to a newsletter level or that you know there's sort of a rise of solopreneur newsletter writers, where instead of having maybe all the benefits of a whole newsroom, they have the agility uh, and the focus and also the personality of like an individual behind a newsletter instead of an organization or a brand. And so maybe Jessica and Dan, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts Jessica like, and, and Dan, you, know, you guys have really pioneered this newer like brevity model uh, around at Axios. Maybe you could just tell us like, what you think is going to be happening and what the impact is on, on longer form journalism or traditional journalism as newsletters continue to rise.
4: Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, so Axios, for those who don't know, we launched about four years ago. Uh, we do kind of what we call smart brevity. Uh, the, our, our stories on our website and in our newsletters uh, tend to be shorter. Part of that, candidly, was just because we all came from different places. Uh, Fortune, Politico, Bloomberg, et cetera. And we all kind of had the same realization when we looked at our analytics, which was it seemed no matter whether a story was 200 or 2000 words, generally people were reading it for about the same amount of time, uh, which, suggested, <laughs> you know, with some exception, uh, which kind of suggested that, that there was uh, people just kind of want to get information and get out, uh, you know, maybe not on a Sunday with a big narrative piece, but generally, uh, you know, newsletters, though, I, I don't think there is a one size fits all. Uh, you know, I see some people here in the room who have very, very different styles, um, Mine is different. And mine's called Axios Parada. It focuses kind of on deals and deal makers and private equity and venture capital. Uh, a lot of it's just kind of bullets of deals and then there's kind of a column up top, but but even that has changed over time. I, I don't think there's any one right way to write it. But but Josh, your other question, I think Jessica can speak to this too. Um, I personally have never gone so low and I don't think I would because I do value the newsroom. I, I value the colleagues. I, I value them telling me what I'm wrong. I value the I, I value the contact they can help me get and, and kind of the collegiality of it, um, even though I largely work alone out of my house and the newsletter really is mine. And I think you can put personality behind it. I, I do think it's a different journalism experience. And, and I think my bigger long term concern is that if we get a ton of subscription-based newsletters and it does really get the aggregated and the best reporters from everywhere, you, know, you have to start paying them all individually. I, unlike Jess, I do believe information longs to be free. And it concerns me from a reader perspective that we're going to get a lot more silos.
1: Still, Dan, you still think it longs to be free? Oh, my goodness. Longs OK, we're going to ha- we're going to have to do. You get what you pay for in news. Get you know. um, free every yes, day. Yes, excellent. Free, free. And sign up for my Saturday <laughs> newsletter, The Takeaway, at theinformation.com slash takeaway. Now, I think, I mean, Josh, there's a great question about where is this all going, the effects on newsrooms. I mean, I also think, like, I hope they're not on this because it's giving all the tips away, but I think like, big publication, traditional publications, kind of get newsletters wrong. in um, so, like, you know, they do their, like, general tech newsletter or their general cloud newsletter, right? Or, like, they, they think of them as just sort of, just the curation and aggregation part, not that like direct having a voice. There there are obviously huge exceptions to that. But so I think um, it's always interesting to see larger publications trying co-op trends, but they usually kind of distort them a little bit. But no, I I mean, I think the question is going to be, as I said before, it's going to turn to kind of what the different, what the objectives of the writers are and then how do you grow and scale? I mean, I just for seven years at the information we have been refining what I think is a growth email marketing advertising engine that, that really works and that we're continuing to refine and that we have a shit ton of people working on, right? And then it is what is behind, you know, and I think that growth is getting harder in the space, not easier. And, and I'm sure Sam actually is probably way refined aspects of this way more than we have. So I, I think... Um, And then, yeah, you talk about the other points of the newsroom, you know, I love that. And I love Chris and Hamish and Substack and what they're doing. I love when they're like, we have a libel fund. Like, you know, that's the one thing that um, an independent writer leaving a big newsroom needs is like a small amount of libel insurance. No, it's not what, you know, the the infrastructure of a newsroom and reporting and editing and coaching and teamwork. I mean, I think that, that I'm not saying it's better or worse than someone going solo, but it but it's very, very different. And so um, to your point about bundling, I, I think what you're going to see is, is publications do bundling. Um, I mean, I think we're going to try and do bundling. I think you're seeing Forbes do it. Um, so I think there's going to be opportunities for curation within this ecosystem. And what I'm deeply, deeply hoping is that those happen... Under the umbrella of publishers, actually, Axios has. Been, I mean, Axios has had um, a lot of sort of. In addition to staff writers, Danny, you worked with independent writers and other people to spin up and try newsletters. And then some of them have gone off on their own and not. But I, I think that's sort of what you're going to see. And there's a big opportunity for publishers to help curate um, the world of newsletters and independent writers for their readers. And I just hope that publishers do that, not platforms that just um are doing that through like crude ranking algorithms
6: just because i
4: add one quick thing because josh you asked about this and i just i believe you guys do this the information i I know a lot of the people on here do and obviously anybody on substack does you know for new for news organizations that do newsletters to me at least the value of the newsletter literally coming from a writer coming from me coming from jess coming from coming from whoever the 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 reader feels even if the writer doesn't know that reader the reader feels they know that writer there is a relationship there and i think it's just a lot better when it comes from a person rather than from the new york times or from forbes or from fortune or wherever
3: yeah we've tested this a ton of times by the way like the catch-all generic email like whatever company at versus sam at versus trung at the open rates are like maybe double
7: Wow, that's a
0: that's a great tip for anybody out there who's like building a newsletter is that like, don't make it from the name of your newsletter, make it from your name, like a real person. And also, I think ties in interestingly with Clubhouse, just because I think it's really fascinating that publications and brands don't have accounts here, they might be able to have clubs. But you know, because it's all about individuals, I think it kind of strips some of the power of those uh, organizations. And you're going to see like the more of this rise of the individual similar to what I think we've seen a bit with the, the newsletter space is like when you kind of exclude public, like traditional publications, unless they're really savvy about organizing their individual writers to like rep the brand and be the ambassadors, you, know, you kind of lose some of the power of be of that aggregate. Um, but you know, Judd and Lenny, you guys both operate in effectively solo, uh, you know, as solopreneurs here and don't have the benefit of the newsroom. Are there things that you think you miss from there? And also, you know, I think both of you do incredibly, incredible sort of longer form a writing. And I think some people might assume that like, oh, newsletters, the regular cadence require like strips down to like shorter form content. Do you think that like that longer form content can still survive? And it just is like, maybe it comes weekly instead of daily. Uh, and, and like I said, what, what else do you think you might be missing from a newsroom? Even though Lenny, I know you weren't a journalist beforehand. But
5: what happens in a newsroom? <laughs> yeah. I don't even know. <laughs> um, you know I, I can speak to that. I, I think for one thing, I have been able with the growth of my newsletter. I do have a research assistant now which allows me to, to do more original work because I can kind of work on two pieces at once. I can have her work on, you know, maybe a future piece while I'm finishing or, or uh, getting ready one, one for publication. You know, but I think part of, um, you know, one of the issues someone says, well, it's hard to scale when you're, you know, uh, you, when you're solo. And I think that's right. But I also think that I don't want to scale. I want to write and report. I was, before I was doing this, I was managing a 40 person newsroom. And, you know, one of the things that I'm missing is lots of meetings and HR and all the personnel stuff you have to deal with. And I don't really like to do that stuff. So I, you know, might get bigger than two people, but I don't want to get too big. There are a lot of problems um, that you have to solve. And I think one, and, um, and Dan mentioned this, that it is a really important aspect of a newsroom. is just the ability to um, bounce ideas off people, um, kind of get feedback as you're thinking through things. But, you know, over time, you know, what I've done is just connected with other people, you know, many of whom actually write newsletters themselves. And we just kind of have an informal network to just bounce ideas off of. Or even if I want someone to like, look at my piece i have people that i trust and like who i who will do that for me and i'll do that for them not every time but but sometimes so i think there are ways of of managing that i don't think you're not ne- you're not gonna duplicate um what goes on in a newsroom but i do think it is manageable but that's the thing i i miss the most is the ability to do that but i i think i have found ways that i feel comfortable when i have a. Uh, um, you know, a more complicated thing that I'm working through uh, to to reach out to people.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's groups like Type House, which is like a, a group chat of a bunch of top newsletter writers, and they sort of act as that support network, offering a little bit of help on editing uh, with like co-promotion and things like that. And you, you kind of replace or you know, re-bundle journal, like independent newsletter writers into an ad hoc newsroom that maybe isn't a company or an organization, but is more like a collective or just even like a, a fellowship almost. Uh, Lenny, what do you think?
2: Yeah, we mostly uh, bitch about Substack and random features in there. Um, <laughs> that is absolutely
0: the major topic in Typehouse.
2: <laughs> so, so for me, I like I have no major ambitions to create any sort of media empire or newsletter empire. I mostly just kind of want to make a good living doing this thing. And so, I think adding more complexity is bad for me. And uh, I'm trying not to add like more work. It's so easy to add more work and more stress and more complexity to the whole thing uh with like my current situation i have it's just like me sending an email once a week and i'm making like twice almost twice what i made in my tech job and i don't know why i would want to change that so so that's what i guess like a a platform like substack is so great at. it just takes care of a lot of that stuff for me that maybe i would have to hire someone to do or even build which i'd rather not spend time doing and so my my goal is to keep doing what i'm doing and maybe Find ways to add other value around it. Yeah. So if if top reporters
0: leave publications to become like independent newsletter writers, how do you guys think that changes the type of content that gets produced? Does that mean we're going to have like maybe less deeply reported or like super uh, like multi? media reports where you like really need a kind of bigger team to support uh, or like you need to be able to spend weeks or months be researching something without writing anything else. You know, do we lose some of that when more reporters go solo and, and turn into newsletters?
4: I, I don't think necessarily. I mean, as, as Judd was saying, you know, there, there's things that when you go solo, you don't have to deal with anymore. I mean, as you said, like, I mean, I had a bunch of meetings today. Uh, I wouldn't have had to deal with those if I wasn't at Axios. Uh, they, they were useful. and There was a reason I was in them. But like, that was time that in theory, were I not to be in them, I could have done reporting. And, and you know, you, I think that stuff adds up. So I don't think that's necessarily true. And again, I, I think it depends on what the, the newsletter writer's goal is and cadence is. Uh, you know, as Lenny said, you know, he writes once a week. There's some people who feel they have to write once a day, maybe multiple times a day. Uh, I I don't think it's really going to change. Look, there are people at newspapers and magazines who have, you know, have a very high cadence and produce a lot of things that are a little bit smaller. And then, you know, some who, you know, work, produce one thing a month. I, I don't think the newsletter itself determines, newsletter for the format, I don't think
1: determines that. I also think like it's, I, as someone, you know, I've hired reporter, you know, Eric Newcomer used to work at the information. I, I've seen reporters who worked in newsrooms and then those who, go off and do their own newsletters. We had someone on the team who's launched a local San Francisco newsletter. And and I think there's a tendency for us to think that like then the traditional newsroom is collapsing, but I, I think reporters are wired differently. And it's great that those that are wired to really soup to nuts run their own show and, and really focus on building that, you know, t- talking to a very discreet audience, but to have that freedom. I, I, in my experience is very different from, um, you know, how many, many other reporters are wired. So I I really don't, I, when I look at this trend, I think it's interesting in a lot of ways. I think it raises a lot of challenges for the industry, but the sort of exodus of talent from newsrooms is not one of my top concerns. And to be clear, I, th- I think talent will leave, but um, you know, reporters are, motivated. some wanna win Pulitzers, some wanna, you know, a lot wanna win Pulitzers, right? It's a very heterogeneous group. Is that a thing you can't
0: do as a newsletter writer?
1: I I think it'd be a lot harder to win a Pulitzer Prize as a a newsletter writer, but of course, of course, you can. But I mean, uh, the the, the awards that I've been involved in judging have teams of, you know, tens, dozens of reporters and editors, and again, I, I, you know, I I went independent to build a publication, so I'm on that side of it, but. but, I just think like reporters are motivated by all different things, and it's a very we we know a lot of the people who are wired to want to do that multiple times a week in your inbox relentless grind, and who get a lot of satisfaction from that and it's awesome, but it's a very narrow group i I really think uh, it is and, but,
3: and i judge, i think that like what you're you're not you're kind of implying or I think a lot of people think this, which is like n- new what a a newsletter first of all like you guys were someone was saying something and i hear this all the time that like well can you put long-form content in a newsletter um it's almost like you're applying that like one is better than the other and i would say that like long isn't necessarily good short isn't necessarily bad and also a newsletter is what? what's the space i think you have 25 megabytes to tell a story that could be 2,000, 3,000 words which we do all the time and it's pretty cool um or it could be like a long gif that tells a story um and i also don't think that like the same like can you win a Pulitzer Prize like I would uh, I would say a lot of people are like me and I I agree I think it was Lenny or Judd someone said I just want to make a really good living doing this like why do we have to say can can you win a Pulitzer doing this like should that even be the goal and also why can't you it's just words on a four-inch iPhone screen does it matter if it's in the mail app or it's on safari
4: the, say, the one thing I do think you might lose and, and, and if this is is that the, most people, I think, who are kind of experienced journalists who end up going independent and go to Substack, uh, you know, there is, I think, a risk that certain newsrooms, you know, a young reporter, a 22, a 23 year old is pretty unlikely to start a Substack and become very successful at it. It's possible, but it seems to me that a lot of people are bringing exist at least exist are bringing existing audiences over. There, there is gonna be a little bit of loss in newsrooms, which isn't a, an issue so much for the media organization, but it is an issue for those younger reporters, that 22, 23 year old, there are some mentors who are gonna leave. And and that's disappointing. It's not a reason for it not to happen. That's reality. and I, I think you see that a little bit already.
1: Yeah, and just to be clear, like I, I think that it's the world of the future of journalism and the world of the future of newsletters are overlapping, but they're not the same, right? In in a sense, like I, I think, the, the why, growth and why, bits,
3: why, aren't, why can't they be the same? Why does it matter if you tell a story, if you report something? No, on, no, a to be clear, or- I,
1: I, I, I mean, Sam, I left the Wall Street Journal to publish scoops at jessicalesson.com. I, I completely think the, the medium does not matter. But what I'm saying is that we can't assume that all newsletter writers want to be journalists. That, that's all I'm saying. I think the value of content creation from the newsletter ecosystem includes journalistic value, but is not limited to journalistic value. I mean, a lot of, the, so I, I think to the point, I was just saying, let's not conflate that. Let's not imply that everyone who's writing a newsletter wants to be a journalist. And let's also not imply that everyone who's a journalist wants to write a newsletter. But no, I I, I left, talked to the same sources and just published it on WordPress. So I absolutely think it doesn't matter what masthead the information's under. I also hope though, that we don't assume that all writers writing newsletters are, are, quote, journalists. I don't think they all want to be. And and I think a separate conversation is how reporters kind of build trust for what they do and the processes they go through that are different from other kinds of writing. And I think that's like really um, a problem we face that's much bigger than just newsletters, but it's a piece of it. So that brings me to
0: this other really big issue, which is around objectivity versus subjectivity. I think one of the things that I valued most about being at TechCrunch was that they really embraced subjectivity. They let me say that something was stupid or that something would fail or that I thought something was going to be important or that this was something that somebody should have done. And I think that that kind of subjectivity is what allowed me kind of build the muscle to eventually move into VC. Uh, but I also think that a lot of times that subjectivity is so important to giving readers the real story. Like if you've done all the research but then you kind of hold back and stay neutral on what you actually think, I feel like you're kind of cheating the reader out of something. And so I, I wonder if you guys think, what you think about you know, the evolution of, of journalistic ethics and, and subjectivity versus objectivity as we move into more like solo writers, because you know, does that, does it free people up to say like, I don't have to act like a newspaper. I don't have to like call both sides and try to stay really like sterile, but instead you can, can come out and say like, oh, I, this is what I think and, and take you know bigger bets or or, or just be more uh, embracing uh, of subjectivity. Now, how do you think that that's going to change the the landscape of writing? Because I think that that's personally good. I think for or too long. We needed, the, we needed the objectivity because if you had like one newspaper in a city and that was a you know a biased outlet, that was a huge disservice to the readers there. But now online, you can pick whoever you want to read. And there are always going to be these incredible pillars of objectivity and journalistic integrity. But I also think you need the sort of subjective takes as well. So we'd love to hear what you think about the, the evolution of objectivity as we move from traditional journalism into you know partly uh, being solopreneur uh, newsletter writers.
5: I, I, everyone has their own views on this. I personally don't believe in objectivity and I try to be very open about where I, where I sit and where I stand on things. Um, and I think that is a way of, of building trust, uh, in its own way. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a progressive liberal person, but, uh, you know, I have been able to get a lot of, um, conservative, uh, subscribers as well, because, you know, they, they know where I'm coming from and they know I'm, I'm sourcing everything. Um, and, but I also think that there are some traditions within newsrooms about what constitutes a story and what doesn't, um, especially in, in political writing, a lot of the work that I've done on campaign finance, like after this riot on January sixth, when I contacted you know 144 donors to the people that objected to the um, uh, electoral college vote, you know it may have been I, I don't know, but it may have been difficult in certain newsrooms to get clearance for that kind of um, reporting because if there is a thing that oh you know all these companies just give monies to both sides, so that's not a story. Um, so I, I think that, that, that ability to kind of just, that's one of the things I value most about being on my own is if I think it's a story, I can go for it and I don't have to get anyone's permission. And I also don't have to, I can say it in the way that I want to say it, um, whether I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's the way every single piece of journalism or every single piece of writing needs to be, but that's the way I like to do it. And I like having that
4: freedom. Um, And and I get that you know by being on my own. And I can say I, I have that. I mean, for what's worth, as part of a large organ, larger organization, I've got that at Axios. I, I will say, I, I do. There are certain things. It's happened rarely, but there are certain things I've written for the newsletter that don't appear on the site. I mean, it's not a lot of stuff I write in the newsletter doesn't appear on the site just because it's too wonky or or, or whatever. There's a there's been some cases where I've written something that's been so much in my voice and, and and first person that it it's not that the company doesn't want me to write it. Clearly it gets published and, and we're the ones who put it out, but it just wouldn't fit with the rest of the stuff that that we do. It, it it's a bit of an outlier. But I can say, and I think I can speak for every newsletter writer at our company, and we've got a lot of them now. We're, you know, we've hired subject experts. Because there's an understanding that the rest of us don't know what's the most important thing on their beat. So if they think this is the thing to write about and this is the way to write about it, go do that.
0: Jessica, I'd love to hear your opinion on the objectivity issue because I think like of the information is being really just the reporting is incredibly strong. Uh, though sometimes I almost wish I got a little bit more of the like personal subjective flavor yeah. from the writers about like what they what their spin is or like what their their like secret you know back channel take is. Like yeah. Maybe you, do, maybe you don't need it because you get that as part of the newsroom, and I certainly miss that from being. Oh, in it's newsroom. the fun
1: part. It's our Slack channel, Josh. We'll let you in. But no, I mean, I look. It's a fascinating question, and I think I, I I try to answer this by trying to think more of the reader and giving them realizing that they are smart enough to not totally discredit information if there is a perspective. Um. And so for example, in my columns, I, I, I opine, um, and you know, it took me probably seven years to get to my current level of opining, um, because I had to like shake off, um, my wall street journal business, um, roots. And so, I mean, I have this debate with many people on my team all the time to, you know, I do want to know what they think, but at the same time, I, um, you know, just because every perspective is being conveyed on the internet, it's still like, well, let me put it this way. I, I, I sort of still believe that there is, you know, objectivity and that's a very important part of journalism. And so I think one of the major challenges any publication faces in, and we face as an industry is how can we, how can we convey that? How can we have trust in the public around that? And then how Yeah, I agree. Can we also add value to the reader by showing our perspective? And so, you know, I think a lot about this and I think a lot of conventions of more traditional news organizations stand in the way of this. At the same time, um, I do believe that like there is a lot. It really depends on the story, but we have to have a way for readers to differentiate, you know, what's in one person's head versus, you know, in certain circumstances, what's been verified you know, by maybe sources at the, the highest level of that subject. So I'm, I'm hoping kind of both can exist. And I think the balance will evolve. And I, I try to use as my true north, having trust and faith that the reader can can sort of differentiate. But again, it, it's a really tough time. So I don't know that I have a firm kind of answer on this.
0: Yeah, it feels like maybe there's just this shift happening where it used to be that you relied on the newsroom's editorial, like the editors, to be keeping reporters in check, and that's how you knew that you uh, that you could trust them. And now instead, that trust is shifting to personality, where it's like, I believe in this person. I think that they don't want to break my trust personally, and they're that you know because that reputation follows them no matter what publication they go to, uh, and so that's why, and, and maybe just their their expertise and their longstanding sort of a, a, a career there, but that's. Why we're going to trust them is their personality, rather than that there's some sort of overarching, uh, you know, mechanism uh, of, of proper oversight uh, to ensure that integrity.
4: But, well, but by the way, personality admitting when you right? fuck up. It, it, but, the thing about a newsletter is you can, res- like, hell, and I think all of us can speak to this. If you really screw something up, you don't have to wait till the next day's newspaper. You can send another new. You can literally send an email quickly out saying, "Hey, I blew this." Um, you know, if it's something of substance, not just a typo or something, like. In admitting mistakes and failure earns you credibility very, very quickly, particularly among newsletter readers.
3: Which, by the way, like is an awesome tactic to get more clicks or do anything. Is sending an email right afterwards to be like, "Whoops, we messed up." So it's pretty funny. But,
0: <laughs> Everyone's gonna go uh, back and read the first one.
3: Yeah, no. Well, like we we've accidentally made a bunch of errors, and we've like emailed the next time, and, and we apologize, and we get it gets way more engagement than the first one. Anyway, but like this whole thing, I I think that like this conversation is kind of silly, because it's not like this is new, right? If you look at the history of newspapers, like this is something that um, uh, Hearst did with, uh, I believe it was Gannett, like it was all about who has the flashiest headline and has the most uh, 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 huge headline on, on the newspaper. This is something that Murdoch did. I mean, this is like, this is as old as content is. So
4: but Sam, like it's not. Of- Sam, that's not it, though it's not having the flashiest headline though is it right like it's the idea that you could that that if the reader trusts you or, or you know whoever's sending the newsletter me just Judd, you that they're going to open it even if there is no headline and even if you've got a great headline if you've screwed up too many times they're not going to open it no matter what you put they're, you're going to you're going to end up in that promotion tab and never get out of it
3: yeah yeah um yeah i don't even remember the the point that we're debating but i agree
0: <laughs> okay, so I, I think that also opens a, a question that we had a bunch of people on the Constantine.club sort of back channel chat asking about if you guys want to ask questions of the, the uh, speakers, or if you just want to be able to uh, to listen to what other listeners are thinking, uh, go to Club. Austin's got it right at the top of the speaker box. If you pull the refresh, you'll see that. Uh, but one of the, the frequent questions was like, okay, you guys are legends of newsletters. Teach us your ways. Like how do we improve our open rates? How do we improve our, our subject lines? How do we improve like the quality overall? So maybe if we could just go around the horn and like give one tip or something unintuitive that you guys have discovered that really improves your newsletter game. Lenny, you've done so many incredible optimizations and like as a product manager, I feel like you're, you're very good at like, like you know, sussing out strategy, testing new uh, ideas. So we'd love to hear you to kick this off.
2: So what's funny is uh, I find any time I spend on like growth stuff, growth, hacking, growth, anything, and not on just like, how do I make amazing content is not time well spent. Uh, I've done like Twitter ads. I've done uh, a referral program. I've done Facebook ads. I've done cross promotion with a different newsletter. And like none of it really does much. And the only thing that really does anything is just writing great stuff. Stuff that, you know, people want to share and share on Twitter, email their friends. So, so I, honestly, that's where I spend my time is just writing high value, concrete, actionable content. And, mm-hmm. and that's it.
0: Maybe just <laughs> unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Like if, it's the, if it's the quality of the content, you mentioned like actionable or uh, depth or you know, when you think about actionability, like how do you think about that? What's the bar for that? Or how do you know like this is something that's actually gonna make people's lives better rather than just inform them?
2: Uh, I think there's like a gut feeling around where like i'm reading it and i'm just like is this something i can do something with or is this just like high level pontificating on on the theory of something so there's a bit of me just looking through it again and being honest with myself is this something new is this actionable is, is this going to help like a product manager tomorrow do something better so there's that um yeah actually that's that's the core of it, is i just kind of keep a high bar for myself and just continue to refine it over and over and over until it feels like okay someone can Go and do something with this immediately.
0: Awesome. Joe, what about you?
1: Yeah, I think I've I've definitely
5: learned a a few things, you know, over the years that I've been doing this. I think one, one thing that's just very basic is, and this is especially difficult when you're on your own, is, you know, no one's telling you you have to get anything done or at a certain time. Uh, there's no one to yell at you. And so, but it, I think it's really important just to set expectations and to meet them. So if your newsletter is coming out at X time, X number of days per week, put it out at that time. It's not so much that people need it or will even read it at that time, but I think it sends a signal that this is a serious thing that might be worth paying for. And so a lot of the people who go off and I think have trouble getting people to pay for their newsletter are people who you know just send them at, any random time. There's some people who are successful that way, but I just think it's harder. Um, the one other thing that I would suggest to people, when I first started, I kind of had all these conceptions about what a good newsletter was. And it's part some of the things I was thinking about is, oh, you have to kind of find interesting people and do Q&As with them or do think pieces on kind of high-level concepts. And so I tried all of that, but I realized eventually that what I was really better at than other people was um, actually digging into FEC filing, digging into some of the nuances of the tech policy implementation at at different social networks, really kind of digging into primary source documents and and making that the basis of of my newsletter and the work that I was doing. And once I just kind of leaned into my strengths rather than trying to do everything that I thought a news a good newsletter should have that's when things really started to pick up for me so that took me you know a couple of years to get around to but I I eventually got there that's a great advice. Just like find what you're personally
0: strong at, like what you actually enjoy doing, where the digging or the value comes for you. And then be, rather than chasing what other people think. Uh, so we're, we're fortunate to have Chris Best, CEO Wait, of Josh, Substack, join us up here. Can, What's can, up, Sam?
3: Can, can I just say that real quick? To everyone who wants to learn how to do this and you are brand new, just there's two great books I think you can read that. There's a ton of that you can read, but one great book is called Made to Stick. It's quite popular. It's about how to make ideas uh, sticky and how to make ideas, uh, easily, easy, memorable. or that's not a word is it, but easy to remember. Um, and then the second one, very, very basic book, uh, on writing by Stephen King that will, I think if you just read those two, you'll be a lot better than had you not. All right. That's
0: awesome. I really appreciate that, Sam. Okay, Chris. Thank you for joining us up on stage. This is the fun of Clubhouse is that like you never really know who's going to show up and who might join. But you know, couldn't have somebody uh, couldn't ask for somebody more relevant right now than you, Chris. As, you know some of the the speakers said that you know the rise of Substack is part of the reason why uh, for the rise of newsletters right now. Uh, and we'll give you some more context. And I know you just joined the room, but uh, for now, maybe like you could just tell us what are some of the top tips or the things that you're seeing really do improve the metrics or just improve the success uh, of Substack newsletters out there for all the audience listeners in the audience who are trying to you know, get better at this game themselves. And then we can get into a few more of like the policy and future of questions
7: later. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think Judd's advice is really good. <laughs> I, I, I defer to Judd. He's really good at this. Um, I kind of think of this from a product nerd lens a little bit. I think of newsletters as having like product market fit where it's like you start writing it and at some point you're kind of writing something that is at the right intersection of what you are uniquely able to do and what people find valuable and want to read. And I think that's kind of the whole hard part of doing it is like finding that thing. And if you can do that, everything else is like details to sort out. And if you haven't yet done that, figuring that thing out is is should be like the top priority. So people will often ask us like hey when can i turn on paid subscriptions? And we used to think that like hey you should build up a big audience first or you should have extra wide metric or or whatever because maybe paid subscriptions would slow you would slow down your growth or something like that. It actually turns out that's not true at all. And the mm-hmm. advice that i give to people now is you know turn on paid subscriptions once you have product market fit with what you're writing which is like a product nerd term for You know, finding that fit where you know what you're writing, the thing that you can create is the thing that people want. Uh, to that end, you know, you talked
0: about the, the like finding of that product market fit, but the testing of that can be really scary when you're like staring at those unsubscribed numbers. You know, how should people go about like finding that product market fit without maybe burning some of their early audience? Like, do you should you build like a little cadre of other writers that you can bounce things off of and say like, oh, you guys love this. Now I know that I have product market fit? Or should you just say, you know, unsubscribe rights be damned. Just like keep publishing until
7: you find what hits. You know, what what do you recommend there? I think, I mean, I'd be interested to get Judd's take on this too, but my, my strong suspicion is that persistence trumps everything in the ability to do this. Basically like the, the number one way people fail to do this is they just give up at some point and the like longer that you're willing to keep at it and try the thing. And for a lot of people who eventually go on to become extremely successful, they often went through long periods where it kind of felt like a slog. And the numbers weren't really moving that much. And many people might have decided to stop writing the thing. And so the, the tips are kind of more along the lines of like, what are the things that are going to make it feel worthwhile to you? Even if it feels like a slog at the start, who are the people you can surround yourself with that are going to kind of like be a positive energy that makes you want to keep going without, you know, lying to you and saying that things are good when they're, when they're not yet. Um, that's how I would, that's, that, that's the most important thing that I would think about. Dan, uh, Jessica, what do you guys think? Any tips for the, the writers out there?
4: I mean, I, what, you know, what Lenny said, that content, content is king, content is everything. And I agree with that. And, and, and it's, it does have to be something that you're passionate about. And if, and if you've got a weird sense of humor, then go lean into that. If you're, you know, if you're very, you know, wonky, then lean into that. The other thing I'd say, and this is hard, and, and I do it a little bit less at Axios than I've done in the past, but if you can, tr- it, the most, the most you can do to try to create a sense of community among readers, and that doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, getting them all together to bar, although I've done that in the past. Uh, but you know, I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, last spring, when all hell started really breaking loose, and we were all stuck at home, and my daughter was, you know, sitting staring at me as I was typing a newsletter each morning, you know, pointing out she had nothing to do. Uh, it occurred to me that that was probably true of a lot of readers, also. So we, I introduced a section that was called Pro Rata for Kids, which was basically a craft or a project for kids to do every single day. And that was, and and that created readers who were sending in pictures of their kids doing these projects, and we posted them, you know, the next day. And th- it was just something. It was something different. It had nothing to do with our newsletter in terms of topic, but but I think it made made this kind of disparate group of readers uh, kind of come together a little bit. And I think things you can do like that because it gives the reader a little bit more you know, it's our newsletter, it's our name on it, but it gives them a little more ownership over it.
1: I'll just, on the advice angle, and um, I think everyone's already said it, it's like finding, I I think a, a lot of people hear, oh, I need community, I need to have personality, I need to show my true self. But above all, I think you just actually have to be authentic. And there have been times when like, I'd read something, maybe Dan did in his newsletter about talking about taking his daughter to school or something. And I think, oh, maybe I should talk about, you know, the fact that I'm on the road. Like Dan, I, I love, you know, he said, like United Wi-Fi is slow this, this is coming to you, like whatever. and th- And that works for Dan and his community. But I found what works more for me is actually just focusing on topics where I have a unique insight, both as a reporter and founder. And that is it, it doesn't have same kind of color that others do, but I think for me, some of that other color isn't really authentic. And um, so I, I think when if you're reading a lot of newsletters, you know, pay attention to the other people's writing styles. But like, what I really pay attention to is like what what newsletters do people just really respond to. Um, and that I think you know is a better formula than the blanket, you know, have personality, talk to your readers kind of stuff.
0: Got it. Okay, so the next question I want to bro- broach is this of of information overload. We touched on it very shortly at the beginning, but now that we have Chris here, I'd also like to talk about this because it seems like two of the pieces of advice or the major themes here are almost in conflict. It's like one is that people feel like, you know, if they really love this newsletter game, they're just getting too much. There's more than they can possibly read. Only like the professionals who literally read and digest and, you know, aggregate newsletters for a living can even uh, get a handle on this. But on the other side, you know, there's the discussion of the, the owned channel of email is partly what makes it so appealing. And, you know, it's not totally owned. You are in some degree, uh, to some degree, like behold to Gmail's, you know, filters on spam and things like that, or where they're going to stick your newsletter. But it's, It seems like those two things are in conflict because it's like, if we want less overload, we're kind of asking for an algorithm, which in that case, you know, is, means it's not really an own channel anymore. And we go back to the same problem of Facebook and Twitter changing, you know, the distribution or reach of different posts. And so we'd love to hear what you guys think. And maybe Chris, you could just start us off with like, what is, what do you think about uh, building product or the the, the path forward for newsletter overload, which might require some kind of algorithm or a way to sort out like the highest quality content from newsletters that are a bit more self-promotional or just aren't really getting the same
7: kind of response from their audience. Oh man, that's a big question. I can say how I think about this for Substack, which I don't know if this is how other people think about this or not, but I think that the fundamental thing that's happening is there's like a flip in the attention economy where the first phase of the internet was like a land grab for attention where everybody had all of the spare attention where people would get bored and they wouldn't know what to do with their time. And there, that was like a problem you could have, like you'd a distraction. And the uh, internet and mobile kind of came along and kind of like devoured all of that. Like every free second you could ever have is taken up by something, by, by a whole set of things that are competing to grab more and more of your attention. And now the game is not find ways to spend your attention because that's done. It's like find ways to spend your attention more wisely. And in order to do that, you kind of want to reclaim, as a reader, you want to reclaim control of how you're spending attention from the platforms that are kind of like designed to gobble it up and be able to exercise kind of your conscious will over it. And this is why newsletters and podcasts uh, are, are very powerful in my mind, because you're basically entering into like a contract with the writer where you're saying, "Hey, you're a human person. I trust you. I want you to help me curate the way I'm spending my mind in this crazy internet instead of kind of like giving it over to the the Twitter feed. And so on Substack, we think of this as like that relationship between the reader and the writer is the fundamental building block of value. Um, that is like the, the the sacred thing that that makes all of the rest of it work, and that's like the most important piece. And everything that we do, you know, at some point, you know, maybe we live in a world where at some point you have so many newsletters that managing all of them is this is this terrible crushing problem. And we would kind of look at that as like putting the readers and the writers in control of how to solve that problem rather than, you know, optimizing for the most engaging content or something like that.
0: So maybe it's like scanning your inbox and looking at the headlines or like the blurbs at the start of them and choosing from there, what do I consciously want to read rather than leaving it to an algorithm which might hide things and you don't actually get to make that decision at all.
7: Yeah. Or if I'm subscribed to 50 newsletters, but I'm paying for three of them, maybe those are the ones that I've, I've decided that I want to spend my time.
1: I mean, Josh, I, I just don't think all curation is algorithmic either. And I, I think, you know, in general, you could go through the concerns about information overload have there's you know there's been an exponential increase in that every transition period in history and technology right like going back to you know there are more than three television networks how will people know what to follow so i i think and um you know i've interviewed chris about this topic and talked about curation on substack and, and you know chris was talking about using referrals and links between writers is one vector of that i, I really think there are sort of myriad ways curation is going to happen and you know, it was, it was, as content people, we can't assume that it's always going to be the tech algorithm. I think there are a lot of other creative ways um, and things that we should track.
0: Yeah, but like, how can somebody else, you know, curate my inbox? Like, it seems like it's something that it, because it's so personal and it's, you know, it's so personalized to every individual because I have a different mix than somebody else that I kind of do need you know, that, that, like, I, I don't really imagine how a human would be able to do that curation on an aggregate level.
1: No, and I mean, you're curating your own inbox, But I think the point is if you look at all the content that's going to be created, it might not all be in your inbox. Um, you know, it, it was interviewing of Williams about the same topic over at Medium. And, you know, I don't know if he's not here, I can say, it, but like he's pretty bearish on newsletters because he thinks it's just one aspect and one, you know, albeit a very powerful one, but one aspect of distribution of of independent writing and In journalism and all of that too. So, I mean, I agree. Your your inbox is only is limited real estate, but that doesn't mean there aren't going to be other platforms for discovering, you know, independent writing.
5: I just think this is actually one of the biggest misunderstandings of how newsletters today work. Like, it's the newsletter is just one means of distribution. Like, if I write something. That is good. That that breaks some ground. Many many more people are going to read it online than read it through my newsletter, and that's a that's a big way that actually you get growth for new subscribers as well. But uh, any Substack, and and this applies to all the other platforms that that produce newsletters now, pr- has delivery via email, but it also exists as a website. And you and you want to think about you know to me the best way to grow your newsletter is effectively to promote your website. Maybe not your website as a destination, but each individual piece of content and view that as a piece of web content. And how do you get eyeballs on that web content, which will then convert more to your, to your newsletter. So it's not, you're not pigeonholing yourself in the email only format. And I think that just seems to be something that I don't think a lot of people recognize
1: And you could go further, right? You could go into podcasts, right? Like I I agree. I, I think it's a piece of it's one distribution channel that's that direct reader creator channel, like Clubhouse is another channel too, right? But um but everyone's using them to different degrees. And I think to date we've seen platforms like Substack focus on, you know, the newsletter piece and and maybe the web piece, right? But I think if you're really gonna build a brand with a strong connection, you know, I mean, Dan mentioned events, right? Like there's a whole platform there that at least I would want creators to be able to like take advantage of if they wanted to.
0: I wanted to bring Paulina into this conversation. She writes one of the most outrageously delightful and insightful newsletters, The Profile, which is a weekly uh, deep dive into somebody's life and just why they're so exciting. Paulina, I would love to hear your comments on sort of any of the topics here, uh, including this one on information overload, because it seems like you know, you've gone with that weekly cadence and it seems like it's, it's so packed with value. It's like, I don't care if I have 100 other newsletters in my box, like, you're, you'll be one of the ones that people will dig out to, to read. So we'd love to hear your perspective here
8: yeah thank you Josh. Um Thank you for having me here Hi, Dan <laughs> um, ah, hello. so so yeah I um basically in in terms of information overload, I do think that i was I was very thoughtful when I decided to write the profile and make it once a week just because. That was the right cadence for something like that. People typically read a long form on weekends. And also, um, it's easier to speed up than it is to slow down. So I could have gone daily. It's easier to go from weekly to daily or monthly to weekly than it is to start daily and then be like, oh, sorry, guys, this is way too much for me. It's way too much for you. I'm going to move it to uh, weekly. I also think that I actually started thinking about the relationship between the reader and um and the author of the newsletter when i inherited dan's newsletter term sheet at fortune and, and that was the first time that like it was a very eye opening thing because i saw the relationship that those readers had to dan and aaron who came before me and it was it was a matter of such loyalty that for somebody like me to step into that who they had no freaking clue who i was uh, but to see the level of like well, you know, Dan and Aaron used to do it this way and and I would like it if you did it this way. Like people were opinionated and they felt like there was ownership of this entity um, that had been going on for so long. So to me, like the wind was blowing in the direction of people trust people. Um, uh, you look at any survey, I, I think I just read this in axios actually, how um trust in All sorts of institutions is going down, whether it's financial or media organizations. So it's just like, I I definitely think that the trend is moving towards people trust people. Uh, I know that so many people who used to read term sheet, I'm sure who still read term sheet, uh, never would have gone to fortune.com on a daily basis to get their news, but they very uh, much will open that newsletter every single morning. So I, I actually think that the, the very foundation of trust is moving in a certain direction. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, personally, I have this I have this theory of uh, attention economy Darwinism that basically um, content mediums evolve over time to be able to better compete in the attention economy. You saw videos getting shorter. You saw blog posts end up becoming tweets, and I think the newsletter, the idea that you know before you had to rely on people coming over to your website every day, and maybe that was a little bit easier in the web era when you had like bookmarks in your in your uh, tab bar, but now with mobile, you know, bookmarks are are not as much of a thing. You know, you the you know, a lot of websites don't have a traditional app, or it's just less common for people to like turn them into that on-home screen bookmark. And so the content evolved to be coming to you instead of waiting for you to come to it. So we would love to hear if you guys have theories about that, um, including you, Ben, uh, the you know true OG of. Of the newsletter game uh, with strategery or strategery, sorry. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Uh, ma'am. Do you have any thoughts on on this sort of the evolution uh, of newsletters to adopt the to survive in the the attention economy, or how we're going to be able to deal with attention uh, or attention overload?
6: Uh, Well, thanks for thanks for having me. I was here at the very beginning, and I I actually had to drop off, ironically enough, to record a podcast. Uh, So I missed (laughs) some bit in the middle, but. Uh, I think there's there's two I think there's two things about newsletters that I think are uh, or one big thing that I think is a myth. I think people are stuck on this uh, this overload idea, and I just pretty fundamentally disagree. And I think the, the reason is that people are sort of like looking at their own experience and all. Oh, I want to subscribe to these newsletters and all oh, my emails overwhelmed, and they sort of apply that that's going to be the case broadly. And it's one of those, it's very sort of cliche, but like the internet is really, really, really freaking big. And there's so many people out there and so many potential niches. And is one person gonna subscribe to all the newsletters? No, I don't think so. I think, but, but again, you know, the, the economics are so powerful for this model that any one person actually trying to make a go of this and being really good at it and covering one particular niche doesn't need that many people to be successful. And so I think it's very much a, you know, a broad, a breadth sort of idea. And so I, I, I don't think the information world is going to be thinking. Now, in a particular niche, there are going to be big winners and then most people are going to be losers. Like there's going to be sort of the, the, the traditional internet distribution where some people are going to do very, very well and the vast majority of people are not. But that's the case with all user-generated content. There's some big people on Instagram, some big people on TikTok, whatever it might be. And there's a long tail that don't make any money from it. But that doesn't mean there's not going to be lots and lots of people that are successful. It's just going to be broader instead of deeper.
3: I completely agree with what I tell my friends or anyone who wants to start a newsletter is niches make riches. And there's always, always, always room for different or better. And I love these types of sites. I mean, I, I, we, I was associated with or a shareholder and a friend of a good buddy of mine owned the world's largest soap opera news website and newsletter it had an audience of about a million people a month coming to the website we sold it for about nine and a half million dollars and there's way more just like it that you don't even know exists i think that people listening to this clubhouse are all kind of in this like weird internet bubble where we kind of all care about topics like what's facebook doing but like that's cool that's great but how many people are in america and probably nearly all of them have email all of use the internet there's so many cool things that you could make i'm part of a Facebook group that has one and a half million people and it's called dog spotting. It's all for people seeing dogs do funny things in public. And then there's like loads and loads and loads of topics that you wouldn't even know exist. And I think that you could probably build a newsletter business that makes the writer $150,000 on practically any, any topic that you could think of. And so I think that I saw people, Josh, in your chat, which is freaking awesome, by the way, I love this. I'm stealing this. um, ask, talking about like, you know, is it too crowded? Is it too late? Um, should I like create something to help curate newsletters? Uh, no, I, I really, I think that that's overthinking it. And if you just want to make a good living writing cool shit and having a fun life, uh, you probably can make a living doing it in just about every topic. And in many cases, the more niche the better.
6: so well, I, I completely agree. I think the other point too is, and this was the conversation that I just jumped back in about 15 minutes ago, that I think, I think Jessica was talking about this, that's spot on, which is, I think, I disagree and, and I, a little a bit, you know, I know Chris is in here, but I, I think I, I told Chris this, I, I think getting focused on newsletters is a mistake. At the end of the day, people are, I think the, where this model really is powerful. I think there is some areas where the newsletter makes sense. Like what Dan's done and, and Paulina's taken over and being about like, you want to understand all the venture VC deals that are going on. That's great. But a lot of this is people following people, like following creators. I mean, just to, to use, to use the term. And th- and to say that a creator can only manifest themselves via newsletter, I think is fundamentally limiting. I mean, that's why for Secretary, for example, I've, I now have paid podcasts and the, the podcast can be either it's literally me reading the daily update or I also have Dithering with, with John Gruber, which is a paid only podcast. And both are very, very successful. And that's an idea where you don't have to be constrained to text. In this case, you could, also, you could also get the same content via podcast or a different sort of thing. And I think that is uh, where this needs to go. And being too, like uh, getting focused on a medium is to sort of miss the point as to what people are subscribing to and why. Yeah, I think that brings up this concept of the bundle,
0: which is the next topic I wanted to talk about, which is you know monetizing beyond the newsletter, because there's so much more. Like you said, people follow people. And just if, you, if you're if you limited to text, you're kind of missing a lot of other mediums. I mean, I think one natural one is kind of podcast where, like you mentioned, you can read out a podcast or you know, go on with another newsletter writer and kind of hash out an idea. But uh, Lenny, you've done some really interesting things here, like with a, a private Slack community, and then you mod- find that Slack community for like article ideas or, or sort of like community contributions, to take the best threads and turn them into content. Uh, just love to hear your perspective on like building a newsletter business beyond the newsletter.
2: Yeah, so uh, the way I think about it is just like, what other value can I provide to my readers? Because I was launching this newsletter, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna charge 15 bucks a month for like, an e- like four emails a month. Uh, what, I feel like I need to give more. And so I pitched that I was gonna do a community. And then three months passed and I'm like, okay, I got to launch this community now. And and I launched it. And like, honestly, it's probably the thing I'm most proud of that I did last year because it's turned into this incredible resource for, for readers and just for everyone involved where they're just kind of, I kind of want to take myself out of the equation as much as I can and help people help each other. And that's basically what the Slack's turned into. And then I just kind of look for what other pieces of value can I offer? So I'm thinking about a job board now, because I feel like I've kind of aggregated a bunch of, I don't know, product managers, growth leaders, execs, founders. And so, so that feels like a natural thing I could add. I'm working on kind of a deals board where you can get deals if you're a paid subscriber. Uh, I have this bonus email that goes out now that is a summary of the best conversations in the Slack. So now I send two emails a week with the help of someone in the community. And so so a lot of these things kind of just like I watch for them to emerge from the people around the newsletter, and then I, and then I find a way to do it without without adding any ton of work. That's kind of my bottom line. Is I'm, I'm trying not to add too much more stress and work to my life, so I'm trying to find simple things that I can add that add value.
0: What else have you guys seen that's been really exciting, like uh, Ben, have you have you thought about anything else? And then uh, I guess we lost Sam, but I was going to ask, if, like, what else I think we can no, expect from something? Stuff- Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I guess we, we got Sam. So, well, yeah, uh, what is it? Uh, what else have you guys seen for opportunities for expanding the bundle and making something that feels like more of a holistic multimedia organization? Ideally, without a ton of lift. That's why I thought Lenny's idea is so cool. Like taking yourself out of the equation, not being responsible for making all the content or all the value, but instead letting you know peers connect with each other to create some of that value inside of a community. But yeah, Ben, Sam, what have you guys seen? Yeah, uh, that you might that okay? would you want to experiment with? I ben, first, is that okay if
3: I go first? absolutely. So uh, I'll tell you some interesting insights that we found. So uh, we own this thing called trends. If you want, you can go to trends.co and sign up or just look at it, poke around, whatever. Um, It's a paid newsletter, but uh, it has a website. But what's crazy interesting is that we created a Facebook group to it as like an afterthought. And I I would just post my opinions and ideas in there occasionally. Um, And what i have found is and trends is like a a a very healthy seven figure it's going to be eight figure subscription business and i thought that everyone wanted the content now i'm just going to write 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 make 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 and what i found is the content convinces people to buy it but what convinces people to stay is the community and a lot of people in our world myself sometimes included is we use the word audience and community as the same thing they're actually like very different. I mean, a community is very simple. It's a place that people discuss and exchange ideas. An audience is one person talking to a bunch of pers- uh, people. And you know if you have an audience, uh, well, like quit trading and what happens? Whereas you have a community if you stop doing it and people continue and it grows, people continue talking and it grows. That's a community. And I think <laughs> Lenny's perspective is actually the way to go, which is like, what's the l- biggest bang for your buck with doing the least amount of work? And we have found that creating a Facebook group, which sounds so simplistic, like everyone's like, oh my God, Facebook sucks, or you can't really make money with the Facebook group. I've been proven wrong just like so much with this. And our Facebook group is like probably one of the most valuable things that our company owns and has made the most money. And I think it's like the coolest thing. People start stuff together, they get to know each other. It's pretty sick and having a Facebook group uh is like a proper community even though it is on facebook uh but it's been shocking at how awesome that is and how beneficial to our company and to our readers it's been
6: yeah i think just to build on what what sam said i mean it's interesting because when i started to i thought that the community would be a super important aspect too and i do still have a forum it's it's i mean it's it's decently active uh but at the end of the day i decided for me for sure this value proposition was actually about the writing. Like, that's what you're paying for. I took off everything from the sell page. Like, it, it's very clear what you're paying for is you're getting something four days a week. But to Sam's point, that's not the right answer for everyone. And I think this goes to the same idea that there's going to be different mediums. There's going to be different channels. Now, Twitter's doing their super follower thing that could potentially tie into mm-hmm. this sort of stuff. I think the, the, again, this goes back to where the, the getting stuck on newsletters is is like getting stuck on a, 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 a tactic, right? And it goes back to following a creator. And that creator could be the centerpiece for a community, like a totem around which a community forms. And then you can monetize the community. Or it could be just someone like me is very prolific and they actually all they do is newsletters. Like that's fine too. Or it could be someone again podcasts or or a club, you know, clubhouse says they want to start monetizing creators. I, I think the 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 key takeaway is that individuals can build direct to consumer businesses. And the way in which they do that and the way in which they monetize can be quite varied. I mean, there's people in this room, some of who are advertising-based. Like email is phenomenal for advertising. And I, I think that, like, I mean, I, well, again, I, I love Substack, but I think there's, there's going to be other services that, that offer free options that include advertising. It just makes sense. And I think getting too constrained on just because I, I came along and I did text newsletters doesn't mean that text newsletters is the only way to do this. There's, there's tons and tons of ways to do this. The real change is people subscribing to an individual. And, and the way that manifests itself can, can manifest in all sorts of ways. Okay, I, mean, I, I, agree with, I agree with everything you just said, Ben. The, the one downside of
4: email, and as somebody who's been doing it for a very long time, there are some technical limitations, as we know. Like, yeah, I mean, it is primarily text. Obviously, you can put images, you can put you know, GIFs in, but there, you know, video doesn't work in there. You, dynamic email doesn't really work still as a thing, or at least it doesn't work on most clients. The, the one, there is still benefit in the end to kind of, a, even whether it be mobile or web, that there are things that as journalists, as a content creator, you can do on the web that you still can't do as well in email. And, and there, it's just a limitation that still exists.
6: Oh, Dan, I completely agree. And honestly, I think one of the frustrations I have with the whole newsletter movement, and particularly when they cite me, is I don't even think of myself as a newsletter writer. To, To me, I created a website. I think Jessica and the information, and we started about the same time, I think we had a similar mindset. Like, this is a publication that is first and foremost on the web, and users can choose to receive that publication in a way that makes sense to them, a way that makes sense to a lot of people is to receive it via email. But again, to me, this is where getting walked on and It's weird. I'm like, oh, I'm the first newsletter writer. It's like it's weird because I never consider myself a newsletter writer, number one. Number two, I'm definitely not the first. Like Wall Street's been doing this for ages. It's just much more expensive. But but like the uh, I think that getting walked into a newsletter, it has to be email is, again, it's, it's too narrow of an understanding of what this sort of opportunity yeah. is.
1: I mean, Ben, I, I think. You totally agree. I mean, I think of uh, email as our push notification before we had an app, which, you know, now we have an app too. too. But I this little bit back now, but I think our just, you know, we've had a Slack channel for like four or five years. We used to do conference calls on 1-800, you know, free conference call. Um, And I think our experience is like, we do those in part because, there are incredible editorial channels for our reporters to learn and source. Um, and, and I think, you know, do probably affect some loyalty on the margin, but we found it's growth is live or die by the content. And so I, I do worry, I think people who are starting newsletters, you know, we run an accelerator for newsletter writers um, or for people I should say building publications on the internet that often involve email. And It's amazing. Like they all come to us and want the playbook. Like, look, I launched my Slack channel and I did did this and I did that. And I think more often than not, the successful ones, like one of those other things just turned out to be right for them. But like first and foremost, you know, just focusing on the content, I think, I think is really important.
0: Judd, I know you had a comment. I wanted to get you in on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
5: I, I talked to. I was fortunate enough to talk to Ben right when I was launching my newsletter in, in twenty eighteen, and he gave me a lot of the same advice that he's giving uh, this room now, and it, it was all right. Uh, and 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 I think thinking of a newsletter really as a publication that exists on the web, and and that and the publication on the web helps you grow your audience is very key. Uh, One of the things I actually have done over the last year, I I did it on a lark uh, because it was just a gut feeling I had was when the pandemic started, I took down my paywall. So I kept everything the same, but I just started sending all of my emails to all of my audience, whether they were paid or not. And it actually hasn't had any negative impact on my business. In fact, it improved my business a lot. No one seemed to care. Um, So I don't know if the paywall for some types of content is really what's motivating people. Um, the one other thing I would just say, um, and, and not to contradict Ben, because I think he has really good advice on this, but I write four newsletters a week and it's very, it's it's just, it's hard and, and can be exhausted. So I know that I could not actually, I would like to maybe do a podcast or do something else, but I know, Like I'm done my Monday through Thursday newsletters for this week, but I really got to start thinking about next week so that next week's newsletters are good. I don't have time to do a podcast, so I would just encourage people who are starting, do what you can, but just make sure whatever you do is
6: good and don't spread yourself too thin, especially if it's just you and you're just starting out doing it. Yeah, that's you're exactly right, Jed, and I think this is something when I started. I had six ways I was going to monetize. (laughs) It's like podcast advertising, website advertising, subscriptions, blah, blah, blah. And one of the most important things I did was within a few months, I simplified that all down to no, it's going to be subscriptions and that's it. And everything that I did was just very focused on just that. And it was really important because that's a hard enough job as it is. And you need, if you don't have all your incentives and everything you're doing pointed towards that one thing, then uh, you can expand later but you need to get the you need to get the one thing right first. So I completely agree with you.
0: So yeah, I would love to ask a little bit more about uh, what happens next with the business models here. You know, Sam, maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience selling the Hustle to HubSpot, how that went, and do you expect there to be more of like a roll-up of newsletters, or is it going to be media companies that do this? Is it going to be you know SaaS companies and and, and traditional businesses that want like a better like content arm and see it as like a, a great legion and instead of maybe sponsoring and paying for ads on these newsletters they just own one uh we'd love to hear your thoughts there
3: yeah i think there's uh yeah, yeah that's a big question i'll try to break down i think that our our uh, strategy from day one was to build up this huge audience make profits through advertising use those profits to create more stuff that was not advertising related and then eventually launch really expensive stuff uh that was a super vague plan but that was the plan and we were just hoping to figure it out along the way. And HubSpot bought us because they're like, well, we already have this like really fancy and lovely software. Uh, you have this big audience base. Uh, why don't you just skip that step that of, of making your own stuff and use our stuff? And uh, that's why they bought us. And and I think that I always thought when we started, I always thought like I always thought LinkedIn or before I before we kind of knew WeWork was not what it, it appeared to be. I thought they should have bought us. I thought like a big a big company that had a high-end product should have bought us. Um, I just didn't think that any of them would be open-minded enough or bold enough to actually try it. And I, it's pretty cool that HubSpot was because I think it's a great idea. Um, I think that roll-ups already exist. So there's this, like I was t- talking about this before with someone else, there's this company called Agora, which I think is uh, horrible, unethical, and the people who run it are frankly kind of pieces of shit. I think they're bad people. And they, they like sell like diabetes cures as a book. So they're like pretty bad. But they own like 60 different newsletters and make a billion dollars a year, literally a billion dollars a year in sales doing it. And I've always been really fascinated by that business. I've been super fascinated. And if you want to look them up, just look up like Agora newsletter business. There's another Agora that's a public trade software company. It's a different one. There's also this other company called that a lot of people know, Motley Fool. I was always really fascinated by their business model. Motley Fool is, we don't talk about them a lot, but they've been doing newsletters for like 25 years. And they probably make $500 million a year in sales and $200 million a year in profit. And I was always really fascinated by that. And the premise here is you build a huge audience, you have a front-end product that costs 10 or 100 bucks a year, something relatively cheap, and then you provide something of even more value on the back end. And that's really where you make your huge revenue numbers. And so I was always really fascinated by that business model. Um, I think that more B2B companies will buy startups like mine, and I think they should. It's a fantastic strategy, uh, and I think it's going to work out really well. Of course, I guess we're going to find out.
6: Can
4: I, can I add that? Like, and I understand the, that's kind of a hub-and-spoke model to a certain extent, and I, I think I'm the only person on here, maybe, uh, who's got a completely free product. Hey, you know, you, you can do this. You know, Ben talked about how the advertising model can really work. You can make a good deal of money and a lot of profit on on a pure advertising basis i mean you can you can be a paid one and you can do very well you can have a free one and have better content behind it and that can work as well the reality is though if you put your best content up front and you give you know at least in the news business which is what i'm in and i view it a little different than the quote content business if you give readers actual news each day and something they can't see somewhere else or at least a different spin on something they can't see anywhere else advertisers will pay to be there because they know that people are going to open it on a regular basis and you can absolutely make a very good business off of it and I, i'd argue i guess at least at axios so far that's been our you know the the majority of our business
3: yeah and i think that there's a tons of ways to get done axios is badass i love you guys dan i read you all the time i think you're the, you're the best um i think that there's a ton of ways to do it i don't think that advertising is necessarily worse than subscription i don't think subscription is better i don't think any of that i just think that it's what type of lifestyle do you want to have? What type of like you sounds like you prefer free. That's cool. Uh, I think that there's totally room for it. Um, I think subscriptions are probably hard a little bit harder to build, and they probably won't grow as fast. But I don't know. Um, but I, I like it a lot. Um, at our company, we we made we make a, eight figures in advertising revenue, and we make seven sub- figures in subscription revenue, and both of them have a purpose, and they're both super important. So I'm on board with both both of them. Um, I think Axios actually, I heard rumors, you obviously know way more than I do, that you guys were going to have this high-end uh, product that cost a lot of money. I don't even know exactly what it was. And I think that if you guys ever do go that route, I think it's going to be a huge success. And I think it's a really good idea.
4: I, I won't comment on it except to say that it was in part our, our CEO pre-launch just throwing some shit against the wall at a conference and it kind of took on a life of its own. That's cool. Dan,
1: I got to say, your CEO also told me on stage that he'd never accept another advertising dollar and called it the crap trap when he left Politico. And I love Jim, and he's been a big mentor to me. But I think, you know, um,
4: I mean, just all I'll say is we've been around four plus years and we don't have yeah. that product.
1: Yeah. No, no, no. No, I wasn't. That wasn't related to the last comment. It was just more advertising. I mean, I think look, I, I've obviously preached subscription. Um, very, very deeply. I, and I, but, you know, we're, we're doing more in advertising and sponsorship of the information as well. And so I, I totally think multiple revenue streams work. One thing, though, I think we have to be careful when we look as Axios as a model for the industry right now, because, the you know, through, through the smart business acumen of, of the team, like Axios is in a sort of the type of advertisers who are attracted to the platform, maybe less entirely your content, Dan, but there are a lot of brands, particularly tech brands right now that are spending huge sums of money on influencing Washington. So, you know, I feel like every time I go to Axios, I'm reminded that Amazon wanted the $15 minimum wage. So anyway, I think like there are bright spots in the ad market right now. And I think actually one of the surprises of the pandemic might be the resilience of, of online advertising, especially for some publishers. But I do think that we have to be really careful to realize that like there are still vicissitudes to that industry and, and really uneven behaviors particularly because of what's happening with the tech platforms and so you know I my revenue is very 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 predictable um, and scalable in, in subscription and so again room for both and we're doing more in advertising than we've ever done but um, it, you know we should Axios is in a, in a very special position I think. <laughs>
0: So yeah, I want to ask Nathan I mean, about, Sam, the, here, hold on a second. I want to ask Nathan right. about this for a second. Uh, Nathan Vesha is an incredible author with uh, with Every, which really pioneered this like multi-newsletter bundle and a cool payment scheme for like how to divide revenue amongst those different writers. Because uh, I think that that's a, a really exciting way for you know, newsletters to maybe scale without changing their personality. Or instead of having to hire people to work with you, you sort of create a collective alongside you. Nathan, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that your bundle works. and. and- and you know, what you think of that, that means or the opportunities for
9: others to maybe take that path to modernization. Yeah, totally. Thank you for inviting me up, by the way. I'm a huge fans of everyone that's here. And my apologies for my, I don't know if you can hear, I'm kind of congested. I got a test and it's not COVID, so I'm excited about that, <laughs> but I'm a little bit sick. But anyway, so the the model we have is basically we're focused on helping new things exist that probably wouldn't otherwise, because there's a lot of people who are extremely like promising and talented writers. But- they Don't have, I think the Substack model works great for like, you know, Judd, for instance, who I worked with really closely when I was working at Substack to like launch him, like Judd already had a really big audience, you know. And there's a lot of people who do make it work on Substack like from scratch without having a big audience. But it's tough to kind of get that initial flywheel turning where you have enough audience that you can monetize, that you can spend enough time focusing on it, that you can build your audience and kind of getting that whole thing turning really helps when you've got kind of like a boost. So um, but we really so we really like that model, but we also like the model of like what you get when you work at a media company where you've got like teammates and editors and you can brainstorm things. And you're kind of like in this creative collaborative mode. Um, and so we, we wanted to kind of like blend those things. Um, and, and so basically the way it works is it's a bundle of newsletters and each newsletter is spearheaded by a writer. That's like the primary creative force behind it. Each newsletter has its own personality. It has its own brand, but it's like harmonious with with the every brand basically, which is kind of like the bundle brand so we think of it kind of like the NFL, where each team, like obviously, has its own fan base and personality. But you look back at all the team logos, and they like kind of make sense together. Um, and it's working decently well so far, but it's like super early. But but we've got sort of like promising vibes, basically, is the way that I would uh, explain it. Uh, we, you know, so readers seem to really like it. The writers that we're working with seem to really like it. And it'll just be interesting to kind of like see what it looks like as we as we start to scale. Yeah, has anybody else explored that, that approach? Jessica, I know you guys have gone with like this very
0: high price subscription. I think a lot of people would assume like, oh, if you make your price really tall, like does that just mean you're going to massively limit your potential for subscribers or you're going to limit to like only a certain socioeconomic class or like a certain set, like a certain industry or business type. You know, what do you think about that? And, and how, what would you uh, say of like your, your findings are from having a high price subscription and, and compared to what maybe people might expect would happen when you have a super pricey
1: subscription? yeah, I mean, we priced for we're four hundred dollars a year, and we're targeting business professionals who are closely following tech and and, you know, similar to like the journal less expensive than the FT. So I think the you price for you know, it does set a high bar in in terms of the value you're going to deliver. but I, I think it's a mistake to not price to your target audience. And, you know, the fact that there are are billionaires who are paying, And at the same time, you know, you have people in their first, you know, batch at YC um, paying the same amount, you know, is both sort of awesome in the hands that like, we can deliver value across the spectrum. But I think there's a very, very strong argument that we should be way more expensive for some sort of people, right? And I think it comes back to matching the value um, that, you know, people are paying to the value that they're getting. So, Yeah, I I think there's, you know, if you look at a lot of subscription news organizations right now, too, I I think what you're seeing is a lot more personalization and and um, variation on price to try and experiment with that matching. But um, yeah, so for us, I mean, we've always known that we really have to deliver um, stories that are unique and that other people don't have. But I I think, um, you know, when we have a a young professionals, it's $199 and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think what's really interesting is also that high end of the market and in how um we can you know raise prices for some people in some cases uh so I wanted to
0: get back to that question of like what happens next in terms of big newsletter businesses and you know roll ups acquisitions uh ben do you do you ever get acquisition offers
6: uh no not not really. um I think maybe there was more of a question you know early on, but now I think people. People assume that I'm I'm pretty happy on my own, and I think that's a, an <laughs> accurate interpretation of the situation.
0: Uh, you seem like you're chilling that, out there, to be honest. <laughs> like It seems like you're living well, a pretty good
6: life. Yeah, well, I, I am very interested in this model and sort of evolving on it. I, mean, I think the, the, the podcast bit that I added last year has been a lot of fun. Um, there's more I want to do sort of as far as working on the business model. I think Jessica's it, comments about price are very interesting. Um, I get a lot of comments, oh, your price should be higher, et cetera, et cetera. And um on one hand, uh, I, I I think people really underrate the importance of growth. Uh, growth like growth will make you a lot more money in the long run if it's recurring revenue than a a price increase will. And I think you know really thinking through that is 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 important. Um number two, though, uh, I think figuring out a way to charge some people more is uh, is a better way forward. And so, like like I did the thing with Dithering, where now some people are paying me fifty dollars a month instead of ten previously. Uh, that's it, part of it's just experimentation, figuring out what would work or what wouldn't. But I think if, if there's a way to sort of sustainably differentiate, or your pricing is important. But the key thing, the limiting factor is my time, right? It's how how much can I produce. And there's something so powerful about you do one thing and it doesn't scale at all on the front end, but it scales infinitely on the back end. And yes, billionaires pay the same price as a student. And and but that's really cool. Like that, that that's super powerful and something that's sort of very unique. And I, I think is at the core of, of what makes this all work.
1: And yeah, just I am fascinated more. to see if
6: like that whale,
0: like if that whale dynamic is going to come to newsletters that, you know, we see this in social gaming uh, and some other industries, like, you know, front, front row tickets to bands and meet and greets rather than just getting like concert tickets or paying. you know, to listen to music. Uh, And I think we're, you've seen this uh, across a bunch of the industries like gaming, you know, a lot of the money is made off of a tiny portion of the actual, not even just the, the users, but even the paying users who are these like ultra whales that really love something so much that they're willing to just like empty their wallet into it. And it seems like some, some of the writers I know, and a lot of the writers, I think on the, on this stage right now, like you guys are beloved, like people, People adore what you write and it really like helps them change their decision making, uh, or just like live their lives better. And to me, I feel like there's probably a bunch of them who would be willing to pay a lot more if you were willing to give, you know, maybe a little bit more of your time to some more personal aspect or community or way to connect to them more directly. So it would just be fascinating to hear, like, do you think this is a part of the future of newsletters where people are going to have those, you know, extra VIP tiers that have like consulting sessions or like, you know, intimate
6: like Q and A chats and things like that associated? Then, you know, yeah, yeah I, mean, I, 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 I think there is, but I think there's the motivation it, it depends what your motivations are. My motivation is not just to make money in fact, that was never you know I mean, it sounds cliche, but that was really never my primary motivation. I wanted to make as much money as i have been making at Microsoft, and that would be sufficient, and I could do what I wanted to do and I think there's you know I'm very gratified at whatever sort of reach and influence trajectory has in the tech industry, but I treasure the fact that, you know, a C- tech CEO pays the same price as, you know, Joe Shemote on the street. Like that's, to me, that is a great thing. And it's a kind of a weird case where, you know, my, most of my readers are subsidizing like the, 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 the people that I, I really want to reach and influence. But I think that's good for me as far as incentives go, right? I don't want to feel beholden in any way to anyone. And the fact that I can sort of get support at scale is a great thing. The other thing about consulting is it, 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 just, it's not, it's a good way to make money at the beginning. I did a few consulting projects in my first couple of years and it really helped to be frank, but I think that it doesn't scale, right? You're fundamentally limited by time, whereas subscriptions scale effectively infinitely. And so for me, keeping super focused on, I don't do subscriptions. I don't do talks anymore, really. The only times I ever speak now is basically for free. Uh, because and That's because it's something that I care about. And I want to have sort of an impact on. Uh, and everything's driven by subscriptions. And it's, it's, like it, it, it's good for incentives. And obviously, that's sort of the ideal. I'm very fortunate to be in that position. But it, does, it makes so many other things that I want to accomplish easier and not beholden to conflicts of interest and things along those
8: lines
1: can I say one more thing on pricing and just the tiers? Cause like I, um, and I agree, I mean, but we've experimented, we experienced some really, really high end tier subscriptions and they just didn't scale. And we we're not doing them right now. I I just am always curious why we think that like the news and information economy, like is somehow divorced from this, like price equals value equation. And I'm not talking about like, news that's in public service or news that you know relates to health or any any of that stuff but i i think and and i realize like i i sort of agree too that people underestimate growth and that you should optimize that i i just worry that you know journalism in particular as an institution is going to be weaker if we set expectations around how much it's worth right and um yeah. So it's just like kind of it's the thought I continue to chew on, like, you know, you would never in, in so many other aspects of our lives, like you'd never expect, you know, a steak at a fancy restaurant for the price of a McDonald's burger. Again, if you take out a segment of information that I think is clearly in the, the, for the public good, right, there's other types of information that I think, you know, we should be more open to the fact that like they can scale and like the value that we put into them as news organizations and the value that people get out of them should at some point, you know, it's healthy for that to translate into the price.
3: Jessica, I I, I know that, I I think that like, it sounds like I've disagreed with you a lot. I 100% agree with you on this topic. I completely agree with you. I think it's crazy that anyone would criticize you or anyone else for charging for this stuff and for charging a lot of money for it. Um, I think it's like nuts when you think about it from the restaurant perspective of like, wait, so, this staff, we just made all this stuff, we've dedicated all this time, we bought all this stuff and you want it for free? I completely agree. I think more people, particularly, I think creators, content writers, news people, whatever you want to call like this entire umbrella, these, this type of personality historically is very bashful and not good at charging a lot of money for stuff. And I 100% think they should. I've ran a bunch of tests with pricing across my business and a few other things where we've charged up for $99 and then $199 and then $299 and then $499. And we actually had the same about a conversion rate. The conversion rate was quite similar amongst those. And the NPS actually went higher with price. And I know that like there's a lot of people who say, um, well, news should be free, this and that. And yeah, it should sometimes. I mean, I get it. That's cool. But also, like you got to get paid. How are you going to pay these people? How are you gonna, like? We're dedicating our lives to this. You got you to gotta make some money.
4: You, but I, I guess this is the part where I'm supposed to take the other side of this, and I will. I, by the way, I, I don't I object to subscription publications and paywalls, etc. It's not for me. I, I don't object to it. But yeah, I am in the information wants to be free. The, the The answer to the steak is, if you could put a good ad and print it onto the steak, yeah, then the steak could be free. And if someone had to stare at it for five minutes. Yeah, but like you put it,
1: an ad on that steak, you're going to get enough to cover the ketchup. Like, I mean, I just... I don't. Not, you know, that's, that's not necessarily
4: true. Well, it's like, not true like they, if
1: you're Dan Primack or Mike Allen, um, or
4: or any of our other twenty newsletters. Uh, all, all I look. We have we have a we have a pretty good sales team. I, I guess the it, partially though, though depends. I think if you're a newsletter writer and whether you're at an organization like the Information or Axios or, Dan, or independent. Dan, who's What's who's your, your biggest goal advertiser?
3: Who's, the who's biggest my advertiser? biggest advertiser? No, well the Axios. What is it? I mean, you know what the big.
4: I mean, I mean, they're, they're a big. I mean, you know, or just uh, name one, just,
3: name a big one. I don't know. There's Facebook fairly,
4: historically has been a big one, just brought Amazon up. Lately, they've been big. So, not like, on my newsletter, though. I
3: think that, like, so what happens, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to be presumptuous and act, act like I, I'm trying to get you to step in this traps. If you go and shit on your biggest advertiser the day they advertise with you, what happens? Nothing. Now, I, again, I know in my nothing. I'm like, oh, you're, you're, I'm getting you. I, I, I generally want to know.
4: I'll, I'll say it in two parts, as part of the organization, nothing, uh, there's, there's, there's nothing. The only thing that will happen potentially is that if, uh, I'll give you an example. This is actually more true on my podcast than on the newsletter, uh, cause it doesn't really come up in the newsletter very often. Uh, I've had, uh, both Amazon and Facebook have been, uh, advertised on the podcast. I will say the agreement we have isn't that we can't talk about them. We certainly can. There is an agreement that if we're going to focus an entire show about them positively or negatively, we pull that ad for the day, just if for no other reason, because it, it, it creates for listeners a bizarre conflict, right? We we're very complimentary or we're shitting on Facebook for 20 minutes, and then there's a 30 second ad for Facebook. It, it just looks weird, it, it feels weird. But from an editorial independence perspective, nothing. And I can tell you, I've been doing this for a long time, and I have shat on what have been advertisers prior and past. I've never had an organization say, we are no longer advertising with them with him because of something he wrote so long as it's fair i mean if, if it's ad hominem attacks, yeah but there's that of course, but we don't do part. that
3: like doesn't it suck and look i i i i think advertising serves a purpose i like i said we make money from it but it still sucks that one of your co-workers your sales team went out and sold that ad and they're making money on quotas and you just go out and shit on this person which i totally endorse like speak the truth but it does suck that like it's not like a, this isn't like a perfect world it's like oh the reader gets what they want I get what they, I get to create what I want. But Sam, really you all can the
4: time, make the same I mean. argument that if you, sh- if you shit on a company that a bunch of your subscribers work for, they might stop subscribing to you. I mean, it yeah, happens, I it can 20, happen. You can lose some money from what you write. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think that's why. but it's inconsequential. I, I it's 20, not your quarter, subscribers.
3: Really yeah, I, I got 20,000 subscribers. If one bails, that sucks, but no big deal. And also, I'm not taking money out of my sales guy who just made this sale. Well, we're we're not
4: like- taking money out of our sales guy. We, we don't lose the ad. We just move it to a different spot and to a different day. I, my the, the point I wanted to make, though, that was my broader point, which is I, I think it depends on the motivation of the writer, which is, you know, for me and, and others can disagree. I, I'm a journalist, you know, first and foremost, not a business person, not a whatever. I, I, I view myself as a journalist. And, and as a journalist, The thing I want to do most of all is tell a story. And I kind of want to tell that story to as many people as I possibly can, or at least many people who are interested in it. And I don't particularly want to put a limit on that based on who can afford to hear the story.
9: I definitely agree with that. I think it's good that there's ad-based media, obviously. But I also think there's like, besides the like, whatever, maybe if you shit on Amazon, they'll stop buying as many ads. There's like systemic issues where like, I used to work at Gimlet Media, ad supported business. One of our podcasts did an episode on abortion. They couldn't sell any ads for that show because no one wanted to buy an ad in there. And that's kind of like there are really important stories that it's harder to cover in that context sometimes. And so I think subscriptions are a really important kind of counterforce where it's like just people want this. This is important information. There's a business model for it.
5: Yeah, I, I agree with, with uh Nathan. I don't I don't really have any problem with ad supported. Media, but it wouldn't work at all for the kind of work that I'm doing. Um, especially like I have newsletters, and sometimes it's all the newsletters I do that week, where each newsletter involves you know me contacting seventy five or hundred different corporations and asking them un- un- uncomfortable questions. You know, and it's also the other reason why one I don't want to have um, you know big. Uh, donors or big subscribers at any high level where any individual person is going to, you know, have a material impact on how much revenue I'm bringing in. Because I think once that happens, just for me personally, you're gonna naturally not want to disrupt that relationship. So I haven't so much had people like want to do acquisitions or or things like that. I've had a little bit of interest, but not so much, but I have had people since a lot of the work that I'm doing is, you know, public interest oriented who might want to donate money to, to the work. And I've really resisted doing that because I feel like once you do that, then that's someone that, you know, you, you, you could rely on that and maybe you use that money to hire somebody else. But now you're kind of dependent on that person and, and, they have influence over what you may or may not want to do. So I think independence is something that's extremely valuable and freeing. And you really get that when you have a broad base of people paying a relatively small amount of money each. Not that there's anything wrong with people paying more money, but if any individual person leaving doesn't really impact you at all, that's a good feeling and it gives you the freedom to pursue the stories that you want to pursue. To, to recap
0: what we were sort of thinking, you know, originally we were talking about why now for, for Substack and why, or why now for, uh, for newsletters in general, you know, there's a sense of the needing for more of a connection between writers and readers, like Substack making it really easy and lowering the barrier to entry. Um, and that the, there's a sense that like, it can be a really good moneymaker and you get strong analytics, but also you can respond. You can actually feel like there's an ownership of the direct relationship with the readers uh, and you know, that you can create this really deep meaning for people, uh, though it does take really deep work to do that. And, you know, people want information. Information quickly most of the time, or they want real depth. And I think it's come to the middle part that, uh, that gets is going to get squeezed here. And um, that, you know, some of the big publications have been doing it wrong by having like a general tech or cloud newsletter, instead of having a real person behind it. You know, having this individual voice can massively increase open rates and just help you form that direct relationship with the reader. Um, and growth is getting harder in this space because it's certainly getting more crowded. Uh, but you know, it doesn't mean that you just need sort of viable insurance or even just like some editing help to recreate what a Newsroom can offer, um, because, but there is also this opportunity for news uh, newsletters to come from individuals and have a deeper relationship with people. And you know, maybe you can hire some research assistants or some people to help with promotion. But I love the, what Lenny was talking about early, saying that you know, as much time as you can pour into like growth hacking and promotion, the more time of that you just actually pour into writing better stories, uh, you end up having a lot more success there. Um, and then you know, one one worry though for newsrooms is that they may lose some of their like better gray or like better in talent uh, and that could mean a loss of mentorship to younger journalists who sort of, who might not have the opportunity or the built-in audience to go out and become a solopreneur uh, newsletter writer um, we talked a little bit about subjectivity and how that's changing and that you know objectivity which is really the, the you know, the purview of these uh, traditional outlets uh, is being somewhat sh- shifted because now you can you can rely on the individual because you know them personally it's not a brand it's an individual that you think that they're they really want to earn your trust and you know their personal expertise. And maybe that the the faith in uh, in either just being accurate doesn't mean you have to be objective anymore and it can instead move from uh, relying on these overseers of these editors to your individual relationship with those writers um, and you know, the one of the some of the tips that uh, our awesome panelists had for newsletter writers out there was you know setting expectations of consistency and then actually driving through them It doesn't mean that everyone's going to read it right at the same moment that you publish at nine a.m. each week but it does mean that they can they'll they'll just build a deeper sense of trust in you and that you should Figure out what you're best at, not just what other people want. Uh, and you know, for instance, that might be digging into primary sources, or it might be you know big my, uh, high-minded strategy, or it might be digging into a really specific niche. Uh, and Sam recommended some books like Made to Stick and On Writing if you're trying to improve your craft. But really, it's about finding that product market fit, the intersection of what you're able to do better than other people and what others actually want to read. And I thought uh, Chris Best from Substack gave some great advice there. That you know, a lot of times people wait to turn on paid until later until they have have a big subscribership. you don't actually need a ton of subscribers. You just have to, you can turn on paid as soon as you have that sense of product market fit. And oftentimes it's persistence is how you get there. It's consistently doing things, trying new things and just not giving up. Because a lot of the best and most successful newsletter writers had kind of a trough of disillusionment when things weren't always going so well. Uh, and you just got to do it authentically. Maybe that means you're really wonky and geeky, or maybe it means that you're you're more funny, but just find what works for you and actually seems authentic. Um, and then additionally, if you can create a sense of community amongst readers and that they're actually part of something, then you can uh, you can let your community start to build some of the va- value for your readers or your audience uh, without you always having to do the work. Um, and you know, we talked a little bit about distraction. And the attention economy and information overload. And you know, the, the big consensus was that really the internet is big enough to sustain all these different niche publications, all these different creators. And that it doesn't matter that you don't have to worry about one individual being overloaded. Just worry about the fact that there are so many individuals out there that each can have their own niches that they care about and they'll find subscriptions that they want to join into or, or creators that they want to follow there. And that just because mobile came and devoured every free second of our time doesn't mean Uh, that you have to just cater to that, uh, to that attention instead, like you should do what really uh, works for you. And, and that, you know, sometimes the the newsletter is really just one means of distribution that we're seeing these multi-skew creators thinking about beyond the newsletter. I I love Ben's quote that like getting focused on newsletters is the mistake. You don't have to be constrained to text. A lot of this is about people following people and you can express that personhood of yourself through podcasts, through communities, uh, through bundles. It doesn't have to just be through the the traditional written word um, and that you can basically make a living on any niche because the internet is just that big. Uh, And that now that uh, people are thinking about how do you build that community to do some of that work when you're not there. You know, things like Facebook groups can still be really powerful. Slack channels can help you mine content directly from your community, and um, and that you know, largely the the. You know, there's still businesses beyond subscription too. You don't have to just uh, think about making people pay a ton for your deepest possible content. Like you can go brief and just like fill their, uh, you know, their little bite-sized desire for content. And because email is still really phenomenal for advertising. And while it might have technical limitations around email or around video or interactivity, you know, it's still this way that you can cut through the attention economy uh, and, you know, break that, or like win that Darwinism of coming to the reader instead of worrying about them coming uh, or having to come to you, you know. Jessica put that well, saying that like email is our push notification before we had it, had an app. Uh, that said, like don't spread your too thin yourself too thin across all these monetization models. That if you can stick with a few that really work for you, you're going to have a better luck, and you're not going to be con- as confused uh, and you know uh, moving with your head on a swivel trying to do too much at once. Uh, but and the growth can often make you a lot more money than a pricing increase. But still, there's probably a lot of room for more like VIP experiences. It's just a matter of who you want to reach. You know, sometimes you might. want want the, the you know the richest people in the world to still be able to pay a low price just so you get more of them because that's who you want to influence. Or alternatively, you might want to charge those people more so that you can charge some people nothing or keep it free to keep that democratized access and to allow people who don't have any money to be able to still uh, learn from you and figure out what matters to you or what matters to them from your content. Uh, and that while consulting and things like that might be a good way to make some money at the beginning and get off the ground, they don't they don't scale the same way as a subscription, which can effectively scale infinitely. Uh, And a lot of times, you know, like if you can increase prices or just grow, your NPS will go higher with a higher price because people just put more trust in like this matters and they they pay more attention to it. Uh, And with these new products coming out, things like Twitter's super follow uh, you know, the publishers of Axios and the information said, like, they don't want their reporters cannibalizing their core content uh, through a paid subscription of their, like, Twitter follow experience. But if they're, you know, adding a new type of content that isn't already living on their site, uh, that's fine. But, you know, given Twitter has had a few problems with consistency over the years and actually following through, we all kind of just want to wait and see what happens there because, you know, the biggest thing is owning that audience. That if you sort of rent your audience from somebody else, you're always going to be beholden to those algorithms. Uh, so hope that recap was helpful thank you for just listening to me talk through it for a few minutes but why just go around the horn and give any like final thoughts uh on the future of newsletters and, and what writers out there could take away uh, to improve their own game jessica why don't you start us off at the top of the room? The oh road.
1: man i mean i think one big picture one like again like let's like recognize like what a huge shift this is and i think it's really exciting um and so we can debate like the nuances of every tactic but big picture i think in the like so this is a huge, huge economy. And I think it, the, the rise of all this is a very big deal. Um, I think tactically, like, um, I don't know. I think we, we got a lot of it out there. I'll just reiterate, like, find what's really authentic to you. Um, and then it, it's also very iterative. Um, it takes time to, like, find your voice and and also to build the audience. And um, it's worth it. So, Josh, thanks for having all of us. Sorry.
4: Uh, You know, Paul, I'll I'll do my part. And then I got to go to bed because I got to write a newsletter tomorrow morning. Um, You know, Paulina made this comment about, you know, this declining trust in institutions. And and clearly that's in in media brands, too, particularly older ones. But but I think kind of media brands as a whole. I, I do think one thing that newsletters have done by putting into letting individuals, again, whether they're part of an organization or independent, it's kind of like the whole political thing. Like, I hate politicians, but I like my politician. I think the same thing is often true with journalism. Right, I, I hate that newspaper, but I really like that columnist. Or I really like that reporter and, and I think newsletters kind of play into that.
0: Sam, what do you think?
3: Uh, anyone who wants to start a newsletter, uh, do it. Um, don't let this whole idea of saturation hold you back. It's going to suck for your first year or two, but just do it every day a whole bunch and uh, hopefully you'll get better and better. Um, if you want to become a great writer, in my opinion, or a better writer, in my opinion, just print out stuff books, scripts, blog posts that you love, copy them word for word by hand and just do it for about six months and, and you'll improve.
5: Judd, what about you? Any final words? Yeah, I, just going back to something that, that uh, a point that was made earlier is that you know this isn't for everyone. You know, some people, as far as going off on your own to start a newsletter, so some people really matches their personality, some people it doesn't. But I would say for everyone, one of the lessons uh, that you can take away from this is it's really important to the extent you can, whether you are working in a larger organization or just doing this as, as a as, as a side project or not, to figure out a way to own your own audience. Because you know Axios is a great publication, <laughs> the information is a great publication, but there's been a lot of publications that have just gone under or had massive cuts, and this is a way to give yourself ownership and control of your own future, whether or not that's what you're doing as a full-time gig right now. So I just would encourage everyone to to think about ways that that they can do that. because so it's, it's, it can be really empowering or at least a good safety net for you down the road. Amazing. Paulina.
8: Yeah. I want to um, reiterate what Judd just said. I think as someone fresh out of, uh, corporate media, um, I think that there's this illusion for a lot of writers that working at a place like Fortune, Forbes, anywhere um, that's bigger and uh, you feel a sense of security and safety, that's actually largely an illusion because we've all seen our coworkers get laid off. We've all seen the cycles that media goes through. And I think that you actually should ask anybody in this in this, group, in this room should ask themselves the question, where does my money come from? Because if it's one single source and that source goes away, there goes your entire income stream. So I was actually very pleasantly surprised to find out that as an independent writer, you can diversify your revenue and th- you can make money from subscriptions, from advertising, from licensing, from freelancing, from syndications. Like there's so many ways. If one of those dries up, it doesn't mean that your whole income stream goes away. So um, just ask yourself, where does my money come from? And is my is my job really that safe?
9: Awesome. Uh, Nathan? Yeah, I think echoing what a lot of people said about how hard it is when you're first getting started and, and yet how rewarding it can be. One thing that has helped me the most is having a great partner to write with. And I think it's really important that it's like just basically the managing your own psychology part of it. It's very easy to just get distracted and focus on like talking about what everyone is talking about right now and to like lose sight of what actually motivates you personally and what your curiosity is kind of leading you to. And I, I just find that when you're writing for your friends who, who like care about you, um, it's, it's a lot more rewarding and fun and, and sustainable, frankly, than like when you're kind of trying to make a number go up.
6: Awesome. And Ben, why don't you give us a final word? I think the
9: thing, uh, this whole
6: movement, number one, uh, have a website, don't just have a newsletter. Like, and I think that goes to this idea that this is all made possible by the internet and by open standards. Like, And a lot of these open standards are under direct assault by the tech industry itself. I think Apple is at the forefront of this. And I think it's something to keep in mind that every time we hear about things like privacy and cookies are bad and and all these sorts of things—that there is a lot of abuse that absolutely is happening—and the industry brought it on itself in many respects. But there's a lot of baby getting thrown out with the bathwater with this sort of the sort of rhetoric around that, because openness allows bad things, but it also allows really great things. And this business is one of many that are like this. And I think the great promise of the internet. is not just newsletters, it's things like Shopify, it's things like this idea where Pete or Etsy or whatever, where people can sort of create new things, can harvest these niches all over the internet that would have never ever been possible without the world as your addressable market. And we need to be very careful and push back against efforts to basically wall everything back into these gardens where a couple of the big companies can sort of take their pick and they get a pick and choose who wins and who loses and what's allowed and what's not. And I think that that is a real danger facing not just newsletters, but this entire promise of the internet and everyone needs to pay attention to it. If you want to join for more talks
0: like this, we'd love to have you on the future episodes of Press Club. 6 p.m. Thursdays, we bring together uh, experts, subjects of the news, and journalists to discuss the big stories and the big people of the week. Check out all of these incredible people's uh, newsletters. Sam with The Hustle, Nathan with Every, uh, Ben, obviously, at Strategy, uh, Judd's Popular Information, um, as well as Paulina at The Profile, Chris Best from Substack, probably probably already subscribed to a few things from him. We've and uh, Lenny Rachitsky, incredible product management newsletter, uh, and Jessica Lesson from, the, the information, as well as Dan uh, Primac from Axios, just these are incredible writable news sources. These are people that I looked up to my entire journalism career, my writing career. And so just deeply thankful that they would spend this time with us. And if you're building something at the sort of creator economy, intersection of the future of writing or, or creation or monetization for creators, we'd love to hear about it at Signal Fire, We're investing heavily in the creator economy right now. Uh, slip into my DMs, I'm easy to find. But otherwise, yeah, if you guys want uh, recordings, takeaways, things like that, just subscribe to Twitter or my substack, Constantine.substack. It has just been an absolute pleasure getting to spend the last two hours with all of you guys. So, so thankful for all of your guys' time. Once again, I'm Josh Constein from Press Club.